And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy here with Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. What's going on, man? Oh, just back to do this again. And, you know, I got to say... It's just it's just amazing to be able to spend a little time with the greatness that we have with you and today's guests here. But before I before I explain any of that, I got to get some heavy lifting out of the way. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by FullScale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. With us today, we've got a Kansas City legend, someone that many in the area aspire to uh, aspire to become often mentored by and someone who's just done some really cool stuff in our hometown. I'm pleased to welcome Toby Rush to start a puzzle. Toby, what's up? Hey guys. Very great to be with you here this morning. How's yeah, going, and I, guess, I guess I should have introduced you as an entrepreneur, investor, and influencer <laughs> here in the area. But yeah, man, so so once again, welcome. It's been a while uh uh, since we've uh, been trying to get you on the show. So we're really happy to talk about so many things today. Well, great. Uh, let's, let's jump in. We can uh, cover, cover the canvas. Yeah. So t- we were, you know, we, we have so much subject matter we could have discussed today and we've arrived at talking about early stage struggles and ha- having all of us had a lot of, you know, we'll say, uh, a few notches in our belt when it comes to starting businesses, has wins, loses. Both of you guys, uh, meaning Matt Watson and Toby Rush, are very well documented for some big exits with companies, but big exits never occur unless early stage stuff goes well. So, Toby, I'm going to go ahead and let you get started in that regard. I know that, uh, you know, and for those of you listening, Toby, if you could give I'll I'll let Toby give a little background about himself and some of the businesses he's been involved in some really neat stuff. So take it away, Mr. Rush. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. So my, uh, really started my first job, if you will, was with Accenture, right? So massive IT consulting group, um, ended up joining a small, uh, software startup company in Houston, Texas back in 2000, 2001, um, initially owning product, and then uh, after my time there, owned uh, all of engineering, QA, and product marketing, and really fell in love. Early stage, um, fly by the seat of your pants. You know, we had some big accounts with ExxonMobil and Chevron, and kind of the oil and gas industry. And it's probably where I first um, kind of got my, my first taste of what entrepreneurship looked like. Came back to Kansas City in 2003. Um, did not have kids at the time, so married, but no kids yet. And so felt like that was the, the right time to try my hand at the startup-y thing. So the first company um, was called Rust Tracking Systems. We did kind of RFID and machine vision in industrial manufacturing and supply chain and warehousing. So the product we ended up with was we put cameras and, for- and RFID readers on forklifts. So we put a camera on top of a forklift, a little 2D barcode in the ceiling, had our own indoor GPS system. And then we put cameras and RFID readers on the front of the truck, and we knew what we picked up, what we put down, and kind of inventory accuracy and operational efficiency. We were able to sell that to our private equity in 2009 and did a little bit of a roll-up. So it was really fun to sit on the private equity side of the table, um, kind of with their money and their analyst, um, you know, diligence to four or five companies, acquired two of those. Uh, you know, ro- rolled those together. I rolled off of that two years after that, so 2011. And was really captivated by machine vision on what we could do with it. You know, think about it, our eyes take in an enormous amount of information. And as cameras are becoming more and more prevalent, even back in 2011, um, I was just captured by the general kind of capabilities of what machine vision could do for us. And so I started networking around saying, hey, who's doing anything interesting with machine vision? And I got pointed to a professor at UMKC um, looking at the blood vessels and the whites of your eyes. Right. And so he was using those blood vessels just like a biometric. So instead of a fingerprint, eventually what we ended up calling an eye print, and he could do it with regular cameras. 
at the time, the university uh, was looking at um, uh, airports and immigration and security. And I'm like, man, those are terribly hard markets for a startup, right? Government, really, really big business, super regulated. Um, but passwords on smartphones were painted at that point and were only going to get worse. And so if we could use that core technology, but simply apply it to a different market, that felt like something really big. So at the time, there was no touch ID, there was no face ID, there was no biometrics on any phone, um, but felt really passionate that that is a growing pain point that this would solve in a really unique and uh, user-friendly way. So we launched iVerify back in 2012, um, you know, continue to work very closely with UMKC and uh, Dr. Reza Derek Shani. Uh, over the course of four years, we raised uh, just over $10 million. And then four years later, sold that to Alibaba for just over $100 million. And it, you know, that sounds like a, a, just an up and to the right story. And there were many, many ups, many downs, lefts, rights, um, almost ran out of money three times. I uh, got sued by a competitor. Uh, we had patent trolls. We had you know, two supposedly um, you know, a provider or partners of ours internationally tried to rip off the technology and claim it as their own and just all sorts of, of craziness that, that you got to go through. But we're very fortunate to have a successful exit to Alibaba back in 2016. I stayed with them for three years. So for two years, I ran biometrics and identity for Ant Financial, kind of the financial services arm, and then um, was on the investment team for a year. So it was really fun to sit on the investment team. It's called a corporate venture capital. So when corporations do venture capital um, and spent a lot of time in Israel and San Francisco looking at blockchain and AI and security and you know, IoT computing um, startups and learned a ton, really enjoyed that, rolled off of that uh, right out a year ago. And took some time off to hang out with the family, um, invest in a little different area of my life. And now I'm thinking about jumping back into a couple of different things. So you've, you've clearly done a lot of stuff and congratulations on your success. I'm sure there was an insane, insanely high amount of hard work that went into that. It was. Um, so we've had episodes in the past where we've talked about some common early stage mistakes. When you look back at your own experience with rush tracking and I verify along with your experience with other people, what, where do, where do those mistakes usually begin? Like what are some of the more common ones? Yeah, you know, I would say that some of the biggest mistakes that I've made and I've seen others make are really, it's, it's the mental game, right? So it's not usually, I use the wrong tool or I built the wrong thing or I had a slightly wrong financial model. It's usually, um, the head game is usually a part of the CEO, right? So I'll give you a couple examples um, where, you know, I really struggled in my early days of where did I get my identity, right? Because it's easy to fall into the trap when you start having success uh, the newspapers want to praise you. The organiz you know, various support organizations want to like, wow, look how great you're doing. Your investors are patting you on the back and you get all these accolades. And, and so you feel like this front stage and you've got this PR machine and this marketing machine and their, their purpose is to make the company look great. And it does. But then you start to take that perception of the company and start to internalize it and think that it's you. And so when you start to think those accolades and those, that praise is really you and you start to intertwine the success of the company or the identity of the company with your identity, um, invariably you're gonna have super hard days. Things are not gonna go well. You're gonna have an employee blow up, you're gonna have a customer blow up, you're gonna have a competitor come in and sideswipe you. There's so many things that go wrong. And then you start looking at your backstage and comparing that to other people's front stage. And so there's this uh, insane incentive and this push to look like you have it all together. Right to keep up this story, to keep up this facade of how great you are and how great everything is going. And the reality is, you feel, being honest, you feel like a fraud, right? You feel like, no, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, this is my first time at it. I'm not sure which A is up. I want to make sure I'm trying to give my investors confidence. I'm trying to give my team comfort. I'm trying to look um, like I know what I'm doing in front of my customers. And where I see, can everybody comes to that point, right? So that's that's a very common point where I see people start to diverge are some people kind of hole up and think they have to take that on all themselves and they keep up a charade, right? And they uh, just start... This is partly the fake it till you make it syndrome. It is. And, and, but then you, you start faking it too long and you're just yeah. not real with enough people that you end up making some really stupid mistakes, whether that's um, you start running out of money, you take money from, from bad investors, um, you start making bad decisions with your team. You think you're supposed to be Steve Jobs, um, who is an asshole. Like he was incredibly successful. I would never want to work for or with Steve Jobs. 
Um, and so people take on these personas, what they well, think they I, should be. And I think it depends on the persona, the personality type of the founder, right? So some some founders just want to see their name on TechCrunch. They want to ring the bell at the stock exchange. They want their name in big big lights, right? Like, And then you have people that are like, I hate humans. I don't ever want to talk to humans. I'm going back to the lab, right? I mean, you have different personalities that fit into these kind of, you know, that fit into this. It is. Well, what, what, what you're referring to, I mean, you're talking about imposter syndrome, which I think a lot of people go through regardless of whether you make it out alive or not, you know, meaning like, I mean, I think any of us before anyone was successful, they weren't. And then it's, how do you grow into that? And I think success can change a lot of people, much like you said, Toby, and kind of like, you know, but, but at some point you talk about that, that quote, kind of feeling like a fraud, you have to grow into that identity as well. Do you have any, like, now I, I think that at any point, most founders that have been successful would tell you they're kind of like, shit, am I in over my head? I, you know, like, but you know, no, when you're doing stuff like some of the stuff that you were doing, no one had done it before. So Mm -hmm. you're kind of like a first or a trailblazer. Do you have any input about how you get past that and, and like kind of become a, a regular productive human again, rather than an egomaniacal, you know, outlaw? I think part of that has been, I've been really fortunate to have some super strong relationships in my life. People that have been on my board, people that have been friends and simply out, outside the business altogether, my wife. Um, and they kind of remind me of who I am and what's important, right? You know, one, one story I've told in the past, I'll try to give you a really abbreviated version. A bank jacked us over, we were almost out of money. The first time I was almost ever out of money, my first company, you're super embarrassed. Um, I didn't have a backup plan. I thought I had it all figured out. And so now I'm three weeks from running out of money and I think it's all going to go blow up. The reality is we're just, we were growing too fast. Like we were outgrowing our cash. And, um, in all of that excitement and all that, that fun, like I just didn't communicate well, didn't know what was happening and then got caught really, really short. So I called up my friend Tracy and said, dude, it's all going to go blow up. I've screwed this thing up. I didn't make a backup plan. I thought I had it figured out. I didn't want to tell anyone and now I'm screwed. And instead of asking me 20 questions about how to get more money or how to go do this or try to fix that. And it's like, so Toby, if this whole thing blows up, do you still think I'll be your friend? Right. You think your wife's still going to love you? You think God still has a plan? Like, and all those things that I really cared about, none of those changed. Right. And that was the, the first time I learned this lesson. I've learned it multiple times. So, to separate your identity from that of the companies um, and say, if the company fails, it'll suck, it'll hurt, I'll be embarrassed, I'll be angry. But I, as a person, will not have changed. I am not a failure if my company fails. Right. And that thought alone, I think people really have to wrestle with. If my company is a failure, that does not mean I am as, as a person am a failure, right? So being able to separate those two things, and it's really to live in this weird dichotomy of, yes, my product sucks, and yes, it's awesome. Yes, my company is in terrible trouble, and yes, we're going to make it, right? And, and to sit in both of those, because they're both true. And I think sometimes we feel like we have to choose the binary. I mean, no, it's awesome. It's blue. No, no, nothing's wrong. It's all great. It's all great. No, the reality is there's, there's a lot of bad stuff happening, and it's super hard. And I still believe in the vision and I still think we're going to make it. And to, to, to be the yes and in that, I think, is a really hard maturity uh, hurdle that CEOs have to be able to make. And if they don't, eventually they, they won't succeed. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of people, their identity gets entangled between them as a human being and the company that they founded. Like Almost like you said earlier, like Steve Jobs was Apple. And it's hard to separate that, right? But as a founder, we have to be able to look at our, our wife and our kids and our family and say, you know what, I'm still going to be happy if that thing goes down in flames. Yep. They, and you got to be able to separate that or otherwise you're kind of miserable 24 hours a day from the stress of work. Like you got to be able to separate yourself and it's really difficult to do. Yeah. And it's well, okay the, to- the, the inability okay. to ask for help. I mean, that's, right. that's a very, so a, in order to be an entrepreneur and a founder, there has to be kind of an insane sense of belief in yourself at some point, which it basically defines ego. And that in that typically asking for help isn't something that we're always great at. Cause like you said, Toby, you have to, you have to kind of like humble yourself and, and call someone, especially some of the people that you might want help from if to be like, Hey man, I suck right now. 
And I'm admitting that openly, which might be the first attempt that might be the first step to not sucking is admitting the things that you suck at. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matt, have you ever had a problem asking for help along the way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'd be one of the first to say that like, I've never really had a mentor. Um, and I'm, you know, my personality is, is, you know, more the I'm going to go back to the lab and work on this problem instead of going to find help. I'm going to try and, you know, concoct some way to get out of this. Um, and, but, and that's my personality style. Right. But, and, and that's where you have to learn about yourself and learn when you need to ask help. Um, and it's just understanding your personality and being able to be real about it. Toby, I was a lot like you, like, like you mentioned like that 10 years ago. Well, we, before we hit record, we we're talking about a few things that 10 years ago would have been a little harder. 10 years ago, I would have, I was terrible at asking for help. Now that I feel older and more experienced, I, I just realized that's part of it. And, it, and I think so much, if you don't ask, you'll never get. So mm-hmm. uh, I think most of the people that, for those of you listening, most of the people that you aspire to be or consider your peers or have a lot of respect for, they've all gone through the same stuff. So anytime a founder or an entrepreneur, I just did this yesterday. I had someone kind of give me that, Hey man, I got a couple questions. You have some time. And it was just that same kind of like, Hey, I think I need some help or I need some input. And I think that's part of like being a part of any entrepreneur community. I mean, we even try to do that here on the podcast. That's why we're talking about these things right now. So, all right. So mentorship, I, you know, and by the way, in 350 episodes, when we've talked about mistakes that people have made that this is a, that's a, a new one that's come up and that's great insight is just where do you get your identity and, and, you know, where do you a- obtain some guidance from? Was there someone at, at, uh, at your first two companies that really was a guide or someone that you, uh, that you modeled your stuff after? Yeah, I'd say I had two, two really good, I mean, I've had a great boards all the way. Um, so I, the two fields I probably call out. So my first company, um, <laughs> I mean, we don't have enough time. I go stories and stories. So the first group of people I approached to raise money from were some older friends of mine, business people have been successful. I went to them and said, Hey, I'm trying to do this thing. We've been in business about a year and a half, two years. Um, just barely scraping along, hadn't raised any money yet. And they're like, Toby, we have no idea what you're talking about. But here's our friend Casper. He does. And whatever he tells us to do, we're going to go do. So Casper had done four or five startups. He was an you know, MBA from University of Chicago, super, super smart. Um, he came in. He was a street fighter, like a, just a brawler. And we, I felt like every time we'd have his conversation, I was getting a little mini MBA. And so he kicked my butt. You know, every time we got together, I mean, a good way, right? So deep trust. You know, he loved me. He, he really wanted me to succeed, but he did not pull any punches. Um, and so going through on my, he's on my board, was an investor. Um, you know, he was super critical um, of just seeing the honesty. Like when he didn't know, he's fine saying, I don't know. He was fine asking dumb questions and he was fine being wrong. It's like, even when, like he'd ask a question and I'd walk him through and it turned out he was wrong. He's like, okay, great. I was wrong with that. And he just moved on. I'm like, oh. He could like come at it really hard, be okay being wrong, and just move forward. And didn't feel like he had to. It didn't. It didn't hurt his emotion, right? He wasn't like he was a lesser person. So the other person that has been you know super powerful for me is Paul Moore's. So he's a local guy. Um, you know, been an investor, been a CEO, been on a bunch of boards. Um, probably one of the best question asker that I've ever been around. So he, again, he's just he's patient. Um, he doesn't pull any punches. He asks great hard questions and he's really honest and he's kind of proactive in his honesty, right? He doesn't always ask, he doesn't always wait for me to ask him the question. So we've got developed a relationship enough of he'll proactively be honest with me if he's observing something. But I'd say both of those folks were super important on the business side. And then I've got a lot of personal friends outside that know nothing about my work, um, but know my family that know me and can call me on, you know, am I, am I losing focus on that side? So me- mentorship and this stuff is is also close to partnership. And one of the things that we have discussed a lot is, you know, choosing choosing a business partner is like choosing a spouse. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, and I've even written about this in a book, it's easier to get rid of your spouse than it is your business partner. So choose wisely. 
Um, Matt and I have both had experiences with great and maybe not so great partners. What advice would you have or what lessons have you learned about finding and choosing co-founders? Yeah, I, having two first-time co-founders is super hard. Um, like if you don't quickly surround those with a good board or a good set of mentors or someone who can kind of help them along, it's going to be really hard. Um, you know, cause you, you know, day one, you, you get married and you have this thing, a baby called the company, right. And then you start introducing other really strong key stakeholders like investors and customers. And, um, you know, so finding that partner, if you haven't known each other for quite a while and haven't done some sort of common projects together, um, you know, not, not that it doesn't work. It surely it can work. Um, but the risk goes way up. The other is I'd say both people have to be fairly relationally mature. Um, so just like going into a marriage, are you willing to reconcile? Are you willing to say, ouch, that hurts? Are you willing to be honest? Um, do you have um, complementary technical skills, business or technical, but you know, very common um, IQ, kind of that emotional quotient, um, to ability to engage on hard conversations and reconcile. But um, no, that's probably the, the biggest risk to any startup is the founding team. Watson, what do you, what's your take on that? I think I love what uh, your opinion about having founder or co-founders that have done this before. Um, that was definitely the issue we had from my Venn Solutions days is, you know, we had a couple of founders that had no idea what they were doing. And then we added three more business partners that also didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> and yeah, I mean that it would be nice to have somebody on the team that had done this before. And um, th I think that's a great insight. And I, I definitely think that's a great insight. If you're a potential investor in a startup, do at least one of the founders know what they're doing. Um, I think that's, I think that's good insight actually. And that, but that's not always possible when it when you say know what you're doing and having been there before. Yeah. Like I don't that that's kind of a vague definition. Like as a business partner, as you, my business partner at Full Scale, you've obviously had event solutions exit and some other stuff. And Matt and I have talked a lot. Like we're very different in in the skills we bring to the business as partners, and that's compliment. That's great. That's actually great. And we're, I mean, we're different in a lot of ways. Now you talk about that relational security or maturity. And that's, I mean, that's something that I've always noticed with Matt, like we can argue and like, I mean, even be kind of like pissy about something and five minutes later move on. And cause it's just, it's things that we need to talk about with the business and it is what it is. I used the term binary earlier and I get in trouble for being binary because People are like, well, what about emotions and all the things? I'm like, those are all the things on the on the way to zero or one, you know. And mm -hmm. and but with that, it, it so much of it, it is business, and you have to. I think you have to culture and foster an environment where you can really share and say, hey, look, I think this sucks. Now, if you're passionate about it, we'll give it a shot. But we got to know when to say when, and that's sometimes a hard part. Have you had any issues with the direction of the company? Like Matt mentioned having five, four other business partners, just from having known that story of end solutions, it, it's almost as if all of them had different objectives and wanted different outcomes with the company at some point. What, what have you had that kind of experience, Toby? You know, yeah, my first company, I had uh, a co-founder myself, neither one of us had done it before, both pretty young, no idea what we're doing. Um, you know, and we had some really rough patches for sure. Um, you know, at one point, um, I actually had to fire him, but then found a scenario where he was able to come back and really make a, a great contribution. So no, it's, uh, super hard. Um, when you have no idea what you're doing and you get into it, um, it's really hard. Um, the second one, you know, I kind of started on my own, but quickly brought on effectively co-founders, but you know, one of them was from my previous company. The other was the chief scientist. So Jeremy Pabin, great guy, um, was from my first company, joined me quickly at my second company, really, to run all of engineering and technology. Reza Derek Shani was the professor out of UMKC. So kind of we were kind of the threesome that really began that. Um, so Jeremy had been in it before, and Reza really trusted me to a large extent on the business side or the technology or the the, the startup side. And I really trusted him deeply on the science side. But yeah, my first company... It, it almost blew up because of founders. 
Now, I think we've never been, we've never kept it a secret that startups are hard. Entrepreneurship is hard. And you know what else is hard? Raising capital. Mm -hmm. um, now, both of you have done that. I've done it. We've all, everyone here has done that. But there are some early stage mistakes that you can make when it comes to raising capital that are going to shoot a harpoon into the side of your startup pretty quickly. To Toby, what experience have you had and what are some do's and don'ts about raising capital in early stages? Yeah, man, I think I've felt like I've made more mistakes than, than not. Uh, personally, I've grown a lot and I've seen enough of others. Um, I think this is probably where mentorship and uh, experience, having people around you that have done that is probably more important than anything, right? Because there is investors have very little time. And they have short attention spans and they look at a lot of deals. And so going in, understanding kind of what's market, what's normal, how do they think you're supposed to present information, um, like going in, unless you have someone who's kind of been there and done it and done it in a relatively near term, or someone who did this 15 years ago, it's just not the same, right? That it, It's kind of helpful, but not anything like someone who's done it in the past three to five years. Um, and even in today and in COVID, right? And so in the past six months, that's even changed again. So having people alongside you uh, that has raised, that have experience, that can coach you. Like early on, I would go into these investors meeting and it would be just me and not think to bring the rest of my team. It's like, well, they're busy. I want them building the company. Why, why, would I, why would I bother them? And not realizing how important it was for the investors to see how the team interacted. And it wasn't that I couldn't present the company. Right. They didn't get to see the rest of the team. Right? So I should have brought my team along much earlier on. Um, you know, Investors are looking for someone who's super tenacious and aggressive and confident and humble and coachable. Right? And that's kind of that weird yes and thing of like, yes, super aggressive and tenacious and aggressive and a go-getter and humility to ask the question of, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm not sure about this area. And so being able to demonstrate that. Um, the earlier stage, the opportunity, the more relational, the investment, right? The more they're betting on the CEO, the later stage, the more they're getting into the financials and the metrics and kind of the, the churn and, you know, the, the sales model and the, the growth in the early stage, it really is heavy, 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 the, the, the CEO and the team around them. Um, and I think early stage CEOs pitch the company too much and not let themselves pitch themselves. And so Toby, so Toby, I was actually one of the people you pitched. I verify too, and I passed. And I passed. Let's talk about that. How did that go? <laughs> and I passed, right? And mm -hmm. and so I'd love to hear a little more of your story of the early days of raising for I verify because, you know, you were trying to take some intellectual property and basically bring it to market, but you didn't necessarily know exactly how you would use it, who would pay mm -hmm. for it, how you would monetize it. Like that's really difficult, right? And so that's why I'm look I looked at it I'm like, okay, this is really cool and if you can figure out how to do something with this, it could be really big or you're never going to figure out what to do with it. And so decorate Before you answer, right. I have a question, Matt. Why did you pass? Because I didn't I just didn't mm -hmm. know I didn't know what the path to monetization was. Like how are you going to take the technology and make something out of it? And so, and I think it took several years and that's mm -hmm. part of the story I'd like to hear is like, how was it raising money for that sort of, you know, new venture? And then you had like a very long, and then eventually you were able to make something out of it. So I think it was an interesting story. No, it is. And um, yeah, so there were a number of folks like Matt that was like, hey, I, and so a funny story, when I first raised money, my first uh, kind of a pre-seed round for I Verify. Um, I had, you know, the standard deck and on my financials page, I had it blank. I had no financials because like, I don't know what it's going to be. Like, this is a pre-seed. This is, I don't know whether it's going to be healthcare. It could be enterprise. It could be financial services. And we're too early to know, right? And so you're right. It's a bet on vision and pain point, right? So if you believe that passwords on smartphones is a pain point and something like biometrics is going to solve that problem, then this is a good bet, but I don't know the exact business model. I don't know if it's a SaaS model. I don't know if it's a licensing model. Um, and so there was a, a bunch of folks that just said, hey, I think it's cool. But I don't get the business model. I'm going to pass right now. Um, and I totally get it, right? So it wasn't, um, you know, so even like with Matt, like I totally understood where he came, he was coming from. 
Um, so I had to get people that would believe in me enough that would get me to the next stage where I could start getting some traction. Um, and so I quickly learned, again, the early, and that's maybe a great example. The earlier stage you are, you've got to get people that are going to a little bit believe in the dream. They're betting like, on you. Yeah. yeah, they're betting on me to a large degree. They are. Um, and therefore, they have to get to know me. we got to spend some time together. Um, you know, I was fortunate that I'd already had one win with my previous company. So a lot of my old investors had seen me kind of, uh, you know, be successful. And again, in 2009, that was the financial crisis, right? So if fall of 2008 was when the world fell off its in, in the wheels, when the wheels came off. And so we sold, I think, May or June of 2009, returning money back to investors in 2009. My investors loved me. Um, and so I, I definitely had some, some wind in my sails from that. Um, but it was hard the first round. And even the second round, um, we did not have nearly the traction that I wanted to have. What gave me um, just extreme confidence of not a single customer we talked to said this wasn't a problem. Everybody said, we hate passwords. We want to do on mobile. We know we're going to do a lot more stuff on mobile. And if you could figure this out, we would love to use it. But they didn't quite say this bluntly. Today, your user experience sucks. And it did. It was terrible. Um, but again, we knew we had a problem that was worth solving. And we knew we had a chance to uh, to solve it in a really unique way, which is what allowed us to raise the second round. So really the first, the pre-seed and the seed round were both really hard. Uh, we got a little bit easier after that. We started to get a little more traction. We started to get some more momentum. Um, those first two years were super hard. I, I think that's a perfect layup for another common startup mistake is not understanding your path to revenue. And I mean, that's something that it, I talk to people a lot. And by the way, I, I want to tell you, I completely respect the fact that you threw out a pitch deck with blank financials. <laughs> like, I thank you. Like, thank you for, I mean, on behalf of everyone that, because it, and it, but it came with an explanation like, Hey, look, I'm trying to figure this out. And I think to many people that sounds like, Oh, why would you ever do that? It's because anybody that's seen enough startup pitches knows that projection, that projections equal wrong. Like when I hear the word projection, I just think wrong. And it's because it's going to be and things change. But one thing that you have to have some kind of, of understanding of is how long is it going to take to put a dollar in the bank that isn't an investor dollar? And yeah. I think that I run, I, well, I don't think, I know I run into a whole lot of early stage companies that, you know, they're, they're saying, well, in six months, we'll have 10% of market share and they're like total addressable markets, like 30 million people. And you know, stuff like that. And like you mentioned, like, I mean, in month six, you're lucky if your user experience isn't a complete train wreck, or if you even have an MVP, or if things learn, or things even work. Um, you know, I'll actually start with Watson at this point, because, you know, with Stackify, were you surprised at how long it took to get a dollar in the bank? Yeah, absolutely. It took us a couple of years. And, you know, the original idea, you know, kind of pivoted along the way and continues to to maneuver around a little bit and uh it's way harder than it seems i mean at least we i mean we had a more clear path They're like okay we know what we're we're gonna do and there are people that do things like this and people will pay for this um but yeah it's way harder than it seems i mean that's a that's a path that many die on and you know toby what's your take on that um just kind of the path to revenue um, I mean, just, just, or even the mistakes. Cause like I said, yeah. like, that, Hey, we'll have this huge market share in six months. I'm like, in six months, people aren't going to know who you are. <laughs> so here's the, really, the really funny one. I mean, I used to be so terrible that I'd build these really sophisticated models and these big spreadsheets and everything tied in. And you could add a headcount here and it would add everything. I mean, it was really, you know, really sophisticated. I remember like Casper was one of my initial, uh, investors, board members and, uh, and, and mentors, um, you know, he'd look at it and he's like, Toby, I don't doubt the math in your spreadsheet, I doubt the assumptions. Because I've never yet heard an entrepreneur come to me and tell me they're being overly aggressive and optimistic on their forecast. Everybody is conservative. Everybody. And everybody's wrong. Right? And so I, you just got to try. And you just got to keep trying and keep iterating. And I just remember feeling pretty sheepish. Um, and now I laugh every time because every time I see an entrepreneur pitch their pitch deck, their financials. So this is our very conservative model. And like, Sure it is, because no one ever pitches an, an optimistic or aggressive model. Um, so I think you got to try. Until you don't know, you got to try. You got to get in there. Um, you know, we initially thought enterprise would move first. Like we thought that was the biggest pain point, the easiest path to market. Um, and it was just super slow. The numbers weren't big enough. 
Um, you know, we we're starting to get concerned of like, dang, okay, Detroit healthcare, we pushed a little bit into healthcare, crazy regulated, hard path to market, a lot of entrenched players who don't like to share and don't like to play nice. And then Apple came out with Touch ID and Apple Pay. And that entire world opened up to us. And we've been doing, already doing some work in banking and financial services. And so it immediately became clear. So we shut down healthcare and enterprise um, in very short order and say, okay, all our eggs, here we go. Um, I remember having the conversations with my investors. I don't know if I was on my board. Of, hey, guys, we don't think it's enterprise. We don't think it's healthcare. We know we've done a lot of work in that space. We think we got to cut our losses, shut everything down there, and pour everything into the financial services and uh, payments. And I remember one of the board members asked, like, I get it, but you realize you're putting all your eggs in this basket. And if you're wrong, there's probably not another iteration on this. And you're like, yep, I understand. And that's exactly what I'm saying. And we did. And we, we uh, got a little bit lucky and, and uh, worked our tail off. But yeah, you just got to try and, and, and be open to being wrong and have conversations and kind of look at the data as it comes back. So when you say shut it down for your company, did that mean redirecting like biz dev and sales efforts or did that mean like changing engineering effort or what what did, what did that mean for you i'm just kind of curious yeah great uh, biz dev and sales um core product worked across the board there's some integrations that were different but you know 90 95 of the core product was always the same kind of how it got integrated into different people's platform changed but um you know whether it was healthcare or uh financial services or enterprise it was always basically transforming a picture of your eye into a, a key that replaced passwords. So I want to backpedal for a second to the raising capital part, because Matt, I didn't get to ask, a, I wanted to ask you the question, what's a mistake that you've made that you look back at when it came to raising capital? Like what's something that you might, you either drop the ball on or got better at or anything along the way. And, and I'll tell you, for me, it was thinking that it wouldn't take a long time. I would say just thinking you can even do it. Like just gen, like that yeah, anyone would write a check it. and invest. Yeah. The, I mean, the it's, it takes 10 times longer than you think it's going to take. And it's 10 times harder and it's a full-time job and you want to jump off a cliff most days. I mean, I think that's fair. Unless you have this company that is growing at some astronomical pace that everybody is beating down your door which is like one in a hundred or one in a thousand, right? The rest of the time, you know, you've just got some kind of normal business and whatever, and you're like desperately running around with your hat out and you're trying to get VCs to throw money in it. And they, and no, it just doesn't work. It You're, you're too big. You're too small. You're the wrong industry. You're this, you're that. I mean, there's a thousand reasons. They all say no. And you got to talk to like a thousand of them until you find one that says yes. And then coronavirus happens, and then they say no. That's the way it works. They say no, yeah, or they, they, they or they uh, they change the term sheet. Yeah, yeah. And these and the, but you talk about the amount of time. I mean, that's probably one of the most common things I run into when talking to early stage anybody. And they're talking about how you know I'm looking at them saying you guys have like six weeks of runway. Yeah, but we're looking for investors. That's going to be okay. I'm like, you guys are in huge trouble. Like. You know, have you talked to anyone? Are you are you cashing a check? So, you know, we just started giving out pitches. We think it'll go pretty well. I'm like, oh, man. So, and just to verify that, Toby, how long do you think or what? how long does it typically take to get money from an investor that isn't someone that already knows you, yep. that's a true angel, that's like, sure, I'll put, I'll put in because I believe in you, like an actual VC or a fund or a grant or any of that? Yeah, I'd say probably average would be six to nine months. If you're lucky, oh. you could do it in three or four. I've seen it take a year. Um, it really, it, so many variables, right? How how easy is it to understand? VCs also like, here's another thing that I learned. They like to pattern match, right? And so if you can say, um, so going into the VC, knowing what investments they've made and who do you think you kind of look like, but in a different industry. So that really helps them quickly assess um, and not waste your time or theirs. Um, is this a good fit? Right. And what also helps though, if you feel like you pattern match with some of their other portfolio companies, they've already invested in those portfolio companies. So essentially you're making the case, um, hey, we look like these. You've already made investments in these, and here's why we still make sense. Um, a caveat though, I've done that before, and that particular portfolio company was like 
the dog in the VC fund, which I found out later. Like, oh wait, well, probably should not have made that example. Yes, we're a lot we're a lot like this horse that finishes last in the race every <laughs> yeah. time. But if you want to make a comparison, that's the one. Yeah, I, I think that that's interesting. You know, another thing too is I, in that same boat. I see a lot of people chasing investment from companies that never make investments in their particular focus or industry, and. You know, I think that it, you can narrow that application pattern down a little bit. And like, if there's a company that only invests in software and you're a service company, and so we learned some of that at full scale, you know, like, hey, love the company, but we don't write checks to service companies, you know, or something like that. So, I mean, you can, through a little bit of, of just general assumption, you don't need data science to do this, people, just some general assumption, you I don't know. Aim for the people that seem to be supporting what you do. Did you have a comment, Matt? What, well, I was going to say, people come to me every once in a while and they want me to invest in real estate. And I'm like, what the fuck do I know about real estate? I'm not investing in real estate. It's I mean, that's the, part it's of the same it. Too. Thing. It goes the same way. Like you invest in what you know, right? You got to find the right investors. Well, and look for investors that are that are able to move the needle for you, right? You know, and that's uh, I mean, we've even at full scale, and you know, full scale is much like Toby. We've done some local stuff here, and I've had great founders in front of us that had stuff that would was very much investment worthy. And I've said like, I just don't know anything. I know Watson doesn't know anything about this industry. I mean, well, healthcare is one of them. Like that's just not something that either of us have had a lot of experience finding solutions around. I don't even go to the, I go to the doctor once a year and that's because they call and threaten me if I don't come in, you know, and, and it's just not, it's not our wheelhouse. Toby, how do you feel about getting aligned with investors that have the, like that true smart money investor? Yeah, I think it's what you end up with is, you know, there's a phrase that I've also come to, to really appreciate in the investment world is called adverse selection. Right. And so really smart money tends to get really good deal flow because people know who they are and what they want. When you get people who are just money, I'll call it dumb money, they tend to be the companies that haven't been able to get smart money. Right. And so you get adverse selection um, with that. You know, so when uh, you know, people approach me or when I've always approached others, I've always really tried to think, of, OK, where are these guys smart and how do I say and really articulate where they're you know, value add that's not money makes a difference for me, right? Because they want to know where they're smart, how they add value. Is it relationships? Is it experience in a, a domain? Is it the technology? You know, there's a lot of different areas, but um, kind of understanding where adverse selection comes in um, and a lot of deal flow. Um, a lot of times, if you get people who have no idea, there's no connectivity to your area, you're getting adverse deal flow and <laughs> pass quickly, move on. I, I think that that's some pretty good advice there. Now, it, do you think that some of those early stage companies that are in that adverse selection area, do you think it's because they can't get smart money or it's just because do you think they just don't know the difference? Um, it is a mix. Um, you know, sometimes they don't know the difference. Um, and that's you know one of the issues that we have in, when in these non- um, you know, he heavily concentrated cities like San Francisco or Austin, New York, there's so much concentration is so, I would say it's easy. It's easier to get feedback and um, guidance on who's raising, where do you fit, how to make the pitch. So they just, it's easier to get that kind of feedback. And places like Kansas City or a lot of the Midwest or these smaller markets, um, the density isn't there. You know, so some of the stuff that you guys are doing you know, with Startup Hustle, you know, a lot of the stuff that folks are doing with Startland and others of getting the word out, giving people a place to come to ask questions is super important. Sometimes they don't know. Um, and sometimes they, startups shouldn't be funded, right? Not every startup's a great idea. Every CEO that comes up with an idea, it, maybe it's a decent idea, is just not a good founder and they shouldn't be funded, right? So I think sometimes we think um, if you're a CEO and you've got a startup, you deserve to be funded. And the answer is no, not really. Um, you might be. Um, but every every deal and every CEO that comes along shouldn't be. Um, and so I think having this kind of you know ecosystem and people trying to be visible and giving people touch points to get plugged in is super important. So that at least if if again you do have that right personality, that right tenacity, that right grit, um, and you've got a decent idea, then you're going to get fun and you get a chance to get up there. Um, so again, we we don't want people to lose for the wrong reasons. 
So with us today, once again, Toby Rush, investor, entrepreneur, influencer here in our Kansas City market, and too many people all around. So, and, and by the way, Toby, thanks for being such sure. an important part of our ecosystem and also for, with joint, for joining us today. I know that I, I've seen you around at a lot of different events and stuff like that. I think it's really important that um, people like yourself transfer knowledge. I mean, that's one of our main mission statements. Now, before we move on, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build software teams quickly and affordably. Toby, we end episodes of Startup Hustle with what we call the Founders Freestyle, which is a perfect, a perfect segue uh, for today, as we have talked about lessons learned. Overall, if you had to share one lesson as a startup founder that you could give to future startup founders. What, what comes to mind first? Uh, relationships. I mean, it, relationships are often why companies succeed and why they fail. That goes for your founder, that goes for the team, that goes for your board, that goes for your investors. Um, and just honestly, the things that you enjoy in life. Um, so the treasure that we care most about in life are relationships. And that's true today. It'll be true tomorrow. And it'll be true at the end of our life. And sometimes we get confused and... I would say misdirected and thinking that money is the goal and money is the thing that we'll love, but it's really about people and relationships. Um, and to ne never sacrifice or compromise people or relationships on the journey. And that will, that will serve you well. Matt, how about you? Yeah. To, to echo what uh, Toby mentioned there too. Um, I think Toby, you mentioned that a lot of your early investors were people you had relationships with. And a lot of the people that were investors in Stackify were people I had relationships with. Um, but also I want to say, I think a key advice is listening and asking questions from those around you, from mentors, people in the community. Like there was somebody on Startup KC posted this weekend about some business idea. And immediately I'm like, seen this business idea about 20 more times and has failed all 20 of them. So I actually reached out to the guy and I'm like, um... I don't know what you're trying to do, but you need to talk to that guy because I see where this is going and it's not going to work. But we talked about this a little bit before as a founder, you know, we tend to bet the farm and be fearless and all those things, but we also have to listen to others, listen to mentors. And that, I think that's super critical. Um, but it's hard. So I, I, you know, I'm going to parlay off of that, Matt. And, you know, before I go, once again, today's episode of Startup Hustle brought to you by Full Scale. So, yeah, I think it, it, before you jump in, you got to look over the cliff and see what you're jumping into a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I've kind of did this with Gigabook and, you know, we launched Gigabook and quickly realized the competition was a lot deeper than we had originally thought. And, you know, you hear you hear phrases and and things like the rabbit hole. And once you get far enough down it, you kind of I mean similar to poker and being pot committed. You know, you 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 find yourself in some in, having some interesting dilemmas. Like, do I walk away from this? And I mean, there's things that I've tried and failed at that it would have been a lot more profitable for me to quit earlier because saving money is making money. Uh, I think, and for me, the overall thing is. I think the one lesson I've learned is just that that path to revenue and getting back to that and and understand that it's a treacherous road. Um, you know, but, but a service company or a franchise or something like that, your path to revenue can be a lot shorter because you can provide services quickly with something like software. And, you know, I can feel all of today's guests and hosts losing hair when we talk about soft building software from the beginning, because you really just don't know. And that's why, you know, when we talk to potential clients at full scale, we, we tell them, I'm like, they say, well, how much is it going to cost and how long will it take? No clue. That depends so much on you. It's not in the forecast. I I, yeah, I can't. Yeah, right. I should just give That's I'm going to take the Toby. I'm going to just give him a picture of Toby and a blank, <laughs> and a blank timeline. I'm going to be like, this dude told me this is how long it would take. But I think, but I think that's key. And I think that if you think that despite how successful you've been, how driven you are, how passionate, you're going to run into a hell of a lot of problems. And if you aren't, 
people handle those differently. We quote Mike Tyson a lot by saying everyone had a plan until they got punched in the face. So how are you going to figure that out? And, you know, like, how are you going to get through that? I mean, the, I, I think if you take some time and look around, there's people like Toby or Matt or myself that are probably very willing to answer questions because someone did that for us. So look around and see who you could find. I know one of the first people that was a mentor to me that that really stood out was Laryl Holt. Uh, who's been a guest on, on now he's, he was what, maybe like guest 15 or something like that. But he was also in my book, balance me now sitting down with Laryl feels like you just visited Yoda, you know, like you almost to the point that some of the info and input so deep, it takes time to, it's kind of like, you got to peel back the layers of it. And, and, and when Laryl was on startup hustle, he, he left and I looked at Matt and Matt's like, I think I want to be like Laryl when I grow up. <laughs> and uh, you nodded your head. I'm assuming you, you've met Laryl, Toby. I have. Yeah, Laryl's great. Yeah. My, my first company. Uh, yeah, so he, he's awesome. Yeah, so you just find, but he's someone that'll tell you what's up. And like you said, listen to it. So now normally we don't do this, but I'm going to pass the mic back around because we got into some different stuff here. Do you guys have any closing arguments about about success or failure in the early stages? No. Oh, the only thing I'd say is, uh, again, it's it's iterative. Um, you know, success or failure at your company is not success or failure failure of you as a person, um, which allows you to actually dream a lot bigger. You cast a lot. You know, you, you can dream so much bigger when if that thing happens to fail, it doesn't mean you're a failure. So, um, yeah, separate that identity um, and go big. Yeah, my, Watson, anything else? Yeah, my my only thing there is just to follow a little bit. You have to follow the money and not get too overly rigid on following some North Star of like, no, I want to do X, Y, and Z, but that's literally never going to work where you figure out you can make a slight change in direction and be successful. And some people fail because they just fail to be willing to make that small change. So. Yeah, and that's something that's important too. That that change in direction. Uh, I quote Watson: "Maybe you're just one pivot away from greatness." Um, so now, with that, man, I got so much great advice today, guys. I got to get I got to get back to work. So I'll, I'll catch up with you next time. Awesome! Thanks, guys, for having me on. Startup hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.